0: We will be reading from Luke chapter 10, verses 25
1: through 37. After this, the Lord anointed 70, oops. So, (laughs) the parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? took pity on him he went to him and bandaged his wounds pouring out on oil and wine pouring on oil and wine then he put the man on his own donkey brought him into an inn and took care of him the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper look after him he said and when i return i will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have which of these 3 do you think was neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Nice to speak to God.
0: One of my earliest childhood memories uh, is of my mom and dad vacuuming our church sanctuary. No joke. And uh, I can remember it vividly. It was a Saturday night and my mom and my dad had put all three of us, my sister, and my brother, and I on the floor of our church library with a bag of oyster crackers and some water. They rolled in this large TV on a metal cart. Do you remember those? Yep. And we watched Davy Crockett and Zorro for hours. <laughs> now, at some point in the evening after our movies ended, me and my siblings, we decided to venture out of the library to help recruit help to start another video. We made our way to the sanctuary shortly after scouring classroom after classroom where my parents could usually be found setting up chairs for Sunday school classes. So finally, we find my parents in the sanctuary, both of them vacuuming the floors. And they were very unaware of our presence at first, which I now know gave us a chance to really see them without the intrusion of parental responsibilities or any other responses they may have had to us. And I don't exactly remember the moment they did see us, but I do distinctly remember the joy I saw in both of them as they labored with loud vacuums hovering back and forth across the floor. As we left the church that night, I distinctly remember my parents' casual demeanors, the unbothered nature that they had of the service they had just performed. And in hindsight, I know they had to have been tired. They had three kids under seven. My dad was a full-time seminary student, was working full-time, and my mom was a homeschool mom. And yet somehow in this moment, this decided way of life and heart, it was a very regular part of how they had decided to live in the kingdom. Now the next day, it was Sunday, and no one knew who had made sure the floors of the sanctuary were clean or who had made sure that there were chairs for everyone to sit in, but I did. And that did something to me. That somehow stirred something in my five-year-old heart. Now fast forward a few years, it was a late Sunday night and all my siblings and I wanted to do was to go home. We had been at church all day, and I mean Baptist all day. And yet again, we, after a bit of searching, found my parents tucked away in the corner of the sanctuary praying for and talking to someone who looked very different from the normal demographic you'd find at First Baptist Church, Daytona Beach. And after waiting on them and undoubtedly interrupting them, they finished up and they told us we were gonna drive this woman and her kid home. A total inconvenience to us because we knew it would be at least another hour before we could eat the infamous Sunday night meal of cereal for dinner. But my parents, as steady as a ship at sea with both conviction and joy on their faces without words, invited us, as they often did, to see that we could always, and we would always, choose seeing and loving and sacrificing for people over our own comfort, if we could. And I'll never forget the strong and disruptive smell that filled the car that night. But even more so, the awareness I felt come over me as we drove up to this woman's house, Sadness, I think, is the right word for it, but not the kind that overwhelms you, more the kind that lingers and eventually pulls your mind to a place of gratitude and to a love you didn't know prior to feeling it. I don't know everything I thought or felt in my nine-year-old body that night, but I knew the, do know that I, for the first time in my life, I think I understood a bit more fully who my parents actually were. And I think I also understood a bit more about heaven coming to earth. Somehow through this very small, tiny act and invitation of love, I experienced what I learned about and sometimes felt when I heard the stories about Jesus on those flannel graph boards in my Sunday school class. Love on display. Love that costs something. Love that generates life in others and for others. Kingdom life. God's goodness tangible to those who need it most. The kingdom of God, it had come near to me, and it had done so through vacuums and a car ride. And it came so often through my mom and my dad. We're currently in a sermon series called Unforced Rhythms of Grace, Nine Practices from the Life of Jesus. And so far, we've covered four of those practices, including last week's teaching on fasting that Tyler gave. And I just wanna say that if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, you need to go back and do so. I think it was such an important teaching for us as a community, and I think it's an invitation for where God is calling us to be. So make sure you listen to that. Now, up for today is the practice of service, and more specifically, a community of justice, mercy, and reconciliation in a culture of injustice and division. Now, service, that's a word that I think most of us Portlanders are fairly familiar, and I would even say are very comfortable with. If you pay even just a little attention, you'll see that altruism lives at the heart of our city. Initiatives, cleanups, organized support, and food banks are all things that those of us who call Portland home, we know very well. Serving, and specifically service in this city, it's a narrative that we have both embraced and worn as a badge of honor, and yet, If you've walked the streets or you've hit up one of our local parks recently with your kids, it's clear that while service is helping and supporting our city in many ways, it's not actually transforming it, or at least it hasn't yet. Yes, it's providing support and infrastructure and help, and it's bringing forms of consolation, of comfort to those who need it. But the question I'm so often left with as I walk home after being downtown here at Night Strike or even when I walk the halls of our church on Sunday, is Is it actually bringing true justice? Is it bringing true healing and reconciliation at a soul level to those who need it most? Is the kind of service or serving many of us have experienced or participated in, is it actually ushering in a reality of peace, of God's shalom that flips the system upside down? Is it ushering in goodness that's sustained longer than a hot meal or a hello or a hot cup of coffee? Service, as we consider it, especially as disciples of Jesus, is a call to think about something deeper than infrastructure and good programming, and to instead, despite how it's been defined before, consider what it means to usher in a more soul, life-changing reality, the reality of bringing heaven to earth, both inside and outside the church service, or serving people. This is a whole person practice. And it's very different from the lineup of the disciplines we all know so well. So tonight, we are going to take some time to explore what this practice is, what it does in us, what it produces in the world around us, and what we're invited to experience through it. Pretty good, right? You ready to do it? I feel like you are. Now, Tonight, Felix just read a story that's pretty famous in the Gospels, one that even if you're newer to faith, you might be familiar with. This infamous story, which is pretty simple, is also at the same time pretty punchy, at least upon first reading. Because in it, Jesus sets this wild upside down paradigm for serving others, and in that, bringing heaven to earth. So we're gonna look back at the story together, and as we do that, we're gonna find it, I think, within it, a framework, a helpful framework, for understanding the practice of service. Now, this framework I'm about to offer you, this is, it's not, I'm gonna buy a vowel. Uh, This isn't a formula per se, and I say that because I don't want you to send me an email. Uh, But this is an observation that I believe sets the tone or, or gives us a base or a foundation for how we actually practice this discipline. And I think it's a a foundation for us to figure out what it means to actually live into this reality. So you ready for this genius formula that's not a formula? Don't send me an email. It goes something like this. Seeing plus sacrifice equals service. Seeing plus sacrifice equals service. Now we're gonna explore that in just a little bit, but first we have to take a look at where this all begins. When first entering our story, we find that our context is actually set up by two questions. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And who is my neighbor? These questions were asked on the heels of Jesus having just sent out his disciples to do the work of ministry, to heal people, to cast out demons, to raise the dead, to carry his presence and his power to the world around them. The kingdom of God was now coming closer and closer to those who had eyes to see it. In that context of discipleship, of what life is supposed to look like for those of us who follow Jesus, it actually sets the stage for where Jesus is about to go next, for what he's about to define and call his true disciples to. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This question was posed by someone who already knew the answer someone religious, someone who is steeped in the expectations of faith and faithfulness. And yet Jesus, it seems without hesitation, leads him to this answer, to love God and to love your neighbor. Love God and love your neighbor. This is how you know or have eternal life. And this command, it's both historic and ancient, and it is simple and fairly straightforward. And yet from it, we see another question arise. Who is my neighbor? On this question, so much rested and so much was opened. I have to imagine that the crowds, or the disciples at least, uh, kinda did a little bit of an awkward gasp or maybe just a side-eye when this question was asked. I think, and this is just my interpretation, that this man was pushing the limits a bit socially with this question, but I also imagine that as other hurt, others heard it, they had to have wondered about it too knowing their own journey and experiencing experience with following him or following the law. Loving God, a perfect God, that was an easy part. That made sense because God is worthy of it. God is unchanging. He is faultless. He is always pouring out steadfast love. He's faithful to the end. But my neighbor, yikes, you know, Steve across the street, Karen in the next cubicle. That is a bit more complicated, a bit more layered. And even those in the first century knew that. Our neighbor, that usually involves some form of humanity and always seems to require something of us that feels a bit more costly and usually a bit more uncomfortable. You see, the religious leader who asked these questions, he was testing Jesus. But from his question came a wellspring of the kingdom of Jesus explaining in a deeper way what this command actually leads to and how from it eternal life or true life, never ending life comes to those who live this way. Enter the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, I'm not gonna retell this story though I've been told today that I have retold the story quite a few times. (laughs) Anyway, what I want to do is make some observations together that I think are important for us in understanding Jesus' invitation to serving or to this practice of service. So you ready? Let's begin with observation number one, seeing. Jesus begins the parable he's telling by naming a victim, someone who had just been stripped, beaten, and injured, and left on the side of the road. And he first mentions that a priest sees the injured man but that he doesn't stop, but that he in fact goes to the other side of the road and passes him by. Next he says a Levite. Now, this doesn't mean a whole lot to most of us, so let me explain who this Levite was. This is someone who would have spent most of their time in the temple, aware of the teachings of Yahweh, and someone who would have helped steward even worship in the temple. And Jesus says that this Levite, he saw the man too, but that he also passed over to the other side of the road and avoided this man altogether. And finally, Jesus says that a Samaritan passed by and he saw this injured man and he, we're told, took pity on him, which could be better understood as he had compassion on him or for him, which it seems moved him closer. Now, it's important for us to understand who this Samaritan was if we're going to get what Jesus is actually getting us to in the story. Samaritans were culturally different, often hated and seen as other in the society, Historically, we know that the Jews avoided Samaritans and that they viewed them as less than, meaning that this Samaritan man was someone who was probably regularly avoided, someone who people crossed over to the other side of the street to not have to see or help. He was someone who knew what it meant to be discarded and ignored and judged as unworthy, and he was someone, at least in this story, who would have had the least amount of reasons to stop and help a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan, and only one could see. Seeing can be defined many ways, but it is for us the common denominator for all the characters in our story which makes it important. Seeing people, this is something that's been talked about a million different ways from Oprah to Bon Jovi. It's something that lives at the core of human kindness. It's something that when done has the power to change both the heart and the soul of the seer and the one being seen meaning that seeing others is a catalyst. It's a doorway for life and value to enter into someone's story. But the rub we have to consider, at least as we see it in our story, is that the priest and the Levite, they saw too. So what happened? And what's the distinction between the Samaritan and the other two? Well, there are two types of seeing in the world. The first is the physical act of seeing someone with your eyes. Some of you are doing that right now taking what you see at face value, and leaving it at face value. The other is a seeing that moves beyond the physical to perception and understanding. It involves not only recognizing the person's physical presence, but also empathizing with them, understanding their motivations, their heart, their inner struggles. It involves empathy and compassion and a genuine interest in understanding someone's perspective and experience. This kind of seeing, it centers around dignity, value, and not for personal gain or for your own sake, but just for the sake of ascribing it to another. Seeing and having sight. This is the great distinction in our story. In fact, it seems that seeing or truly seeing someone is the prerequisite or the catalyst for actually being able to serve them. At least, I think it was for the Samaritan. Seeing is what drew the Samaritan to the injured man. It is what helped him weigh the cost of stopping and what helped him choose it anyway. It is what helped him pay a price on behalf of someone he didn't know. And I imagine it's what allowed him to not only be inconvenienced, but to be a conduit of love to someone who needed it so desperately. Seeing, and and we have talked about this before, it's about the heart. It's about the posture of the heart and what lives in the heart. In our story, Jesus, without specific words, is naming the profound reality that seeing others, and most of the time without even knowing them, is an actual marker of the kingdom of God, of God's goodness crashing into the brokenness of this world and into people's lives, making it better. And I just have to say, it is the call of every disciple. Because what lives in it What lives in seeing others, really seeing other people is the refrain of each of our stories. I was lost and now I'm found. He saw me and he saved me when I was helpless. This is love. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us and laid down his life for us. Seeing others, this is the disciples' place of both remembrance and worship, and it is inescapable. But it has to be said that it is costly, which leads us to observation number two, sacrifice. Though the Samaritan saw, he still had a choice to make. Seeing is always the first step, but what we do with sight, that is what will either catalyze the kingdom or minimize it. You see, while noble, it is not enough to see. Sight put into action, that is where serving others begins, and it never comes without a cost and I hate that part. Can I just say that? I hate that part. I truly hate being inconvenienced. I prefer things my way. I don't like losing time, money, or games, or really anything. And I don't always love putting aside my preferences or my schedule or my ideal for someone else. That is until I do. The great illusion of sacrifice is that it will cost without return. But in the kingdom, that's not so. Can you imagine, or at least try to imagine with me, the joy of the Samaritan as he rode away after ensuring both the man's safety and healing? Can you imagine the joy he had knowing the justice that was received and the mercy that could now be tangibly known and felt? And all of this and all the ways he probably longed to know it himself in different seasons. We don't have it spelled out in the text, but Jesus, as he was offering this story, was allowing space for the imagination and the heart to move to an understanding of the great kingdom concept of return. Reaping and sowing, sacrifice, or the act of laying down your, you fill in the blank. Doing that for another, even if it's momentary, it actually opens up a threshold for heaven to come. For God's rule to be exhibited on earth through your willingness for it to come at all costs. Whether that be picking up trash or paying someone's bill, heaven coming to earth through sacrifice, it changes not just the world, but our hearts as we do it. And I just have to say that is rarely laid out in the pamphlets we get from our local food banks or on our sign-up sheets for Bridgetown Kids, but it's true. Sacrifice, this is where life happens through our death. And this is a central profound truth in the kingdom. And as we know, this formula is not a new one. Seeing and sacrifice. This is where serving, true service, begins for the disciple. It starts in the heart. It starts with what we're willing to die for so that others may know life. Seeing and sacrifice. This is putting into practice over and over again the rhythm of the gospel that each of us have received. And it is the way of the rabbi and it is how we become like him. It is where we both know the reality of heaven coming to earth and the gift of knowing the power of life that can only come through death. Eternal life, the kind that was asked about in our story. It's not just for when we die. It's for every day until then too. Jesus, as he tells this story, is calling us to consider the deeper, deeper meaning of loving our neighbor, And how this extraordinary way of this miraculous equation, we find that loving God and knowing him, this is what actually frees us to love others as he has loved us. What must I do to have eternal life? And who is my neighbor? These two questions can be found at the center of following Jesus. But how we answer them, that is and that will be the witness of what we have allowed him to do in us. I love movies, I love going to them, I love watching them, I love re-watching them. I'm one of those people. And man, I'm a sucker for a happy ending, anyone else? I mean, you could blame it on my romantic heart and sensibilities, but I'll happily pay 20 bucks to see in two hours an underdog in an impossible situation, not only overcome their circumstances, but change the world as they do it. I'd say that's 20 bucks well spent. And I don't know, maybe it was all those Mighty Ducks movies or watching Cool Runnings approximately seven times. But I can't help but be inspired and maybe even a little changed every time I see a movie like The Blind Side or The Pursuit of Happiness. And the truth is, I'm not the only one. There's something to be said about the fact that movies like these are some of the most highly grossing films on the planet. Why is that? Well, core to every human lives a desire to know and see and experience the power of love. Sacrificial love, costly love, love that can not only change our world but change the entire world. A kind of love that changes someone's circumstances and it changes their heart. Love that overcomes. Love that sees beyond what is to what could be. Love that is powerful enough to heal and restore what's been lost or stolen. Love that tells a better story, that tells a truer story. We are people designed for this kind of experience, for this kind of love. But as most of us know, and based on what we've learned from these films, really knowing this kind of power or this kind of love, it actually demands that we practice it. This is one of those things we just can't, stick into our minds and experience. It is something that we actually have to live experientially. Now, unfortunately, unfortunately, our lives don't run in two-hour blocks. And happy endings are rarely captured in just one moment of success or faithfulness, which means that we need to talk about how this actually translates to us, to the lives that we have been called to live. To the very real, work-centered, kid-producing, schedule-filled, tragedy-prone lives that we live in this world. Now, putting service into practice or becoming people who serve, who usher in more than just good deeds, but the actual kingdom, I think demands that we acknowledge and be honest about two things. And the first is the brokenness in our world. The second is the brokenness in us. Now, if you haven't noticed, our world, the systems, the leaders, the structures, and the environment, they are quite a mess, and that's putting it politely. Each are riddled with division, and injustice, and brokenness, and evidence of sin, and in that, so much pain. Now, the good news for us is that the world was in a similar condition to when Jesus was on the earth, which means that what he's calling us to in this practice, it's not something dependent upon our current ethos or political climate. In fact, in many ways, the brokenness of this world is the exact environment for people to see the realities of the kingdom so boldly on display. What Jesus is after in calling us to live a life of seeing and sacrificing and serving other peoples in the midst of our present worldly realities is actually a life-changing invitation for us to know at a soul level and for the world to know what true and eternal life actually is. The world, our world, it is desperate for help. You don't have to go very far. You don't have to walk very far, even out this door to know that. But true help is more than just momentary provision. It is Jesus coming near and restoring what only he can. The way of the kingdom, it only happens as we serve the world. Did you get that? The realities of the kingdom crashing into the systems you have so much beef with, only comes when you enter into a place of service of truly seeing and sacrificing for the kingdom of God to come near. The brokenness of our world, it was never meant to be a deterrent or an obstacle to serving others as many of us have allowed it to be. It was meant to be the motivation for it. So, as we walk this path of service, here's the encouragement. As we do so, some of us, in spite of the brokenness we see around us that can often be super overwhelming, The truth is, as we live it out by faith, as we walk like our rabbi, who by the way, never wavered under the conditions of this world, as we do that, then we will become more like him and we will learn a bit more about the revolution called the kingdom of God that he started in the midst of a trash heap. Now, it has to be said that the brokenness we see in our world, it's not so unfamiliar to the brokenness that many of us see in ourselves as well. And for so many of us, this, not the world, is our greater obstacle to living into the practice of serving or service. So many of us have allowed what is happening on the interior to keep us from actually living out the reality of the gospel that we actually know. You see, we all know, at least in part, our bents, those places in us that lean towards sin, that lean towards selfishness or self-protection or self-reliance. We all know those gaps that exist within us despite what Jesus has done for us. And if you don't know, you need to start asking God about those and maybe a friend or two. <laughs> now in that, I know that so many of us, myself included, excuse or discredit or maybe even abdicate serving others because of those things. We, we somehow allowed the narrative that we are not enough to keep us from entering into this discipline or this practice of what it is actually meant to bring us life as we bring life to others. One of the greatest tools of the enemy, at least as I've seen it over my last 20 years of ministry is this, to discredit the disciple. To tell them long enough and consistently enough that they are not worthy of either the experience of kingdom life that comes through sacrifice or that they are not worthy to serve those who need it most as though their brokenness will get onto the other person or bleed out in some way. And can I just tell you, that's a joke. Satan is a real joker. Some of you need to write that down. (laughs) Because the truth is, usually the most broken are among the most powerful. And I just, I wanna give you a little framework for this. Let's talk about the disciples, the most famous Christians, at least that we know so far. You got Pete. Big mouth, prideful, selfish, eager for a place of honor, no dice. Then there's Judas, greedy, selfish, ego, fear, and a betrayal of the worst kind. And Matthew, a schemer, a deceiver. Jimmy and John, always looking for the most powerful seat in the room. And I could go on. Listen. The brokenness in you, the addictions you've faced, the affairs you've had, the lies you've told, the sin that's been done to you and by you, all of it in the hands of Jesus is able to be transformed into a vehicle for the kingdom of God. It is able to be worked out not just for your good, but hear me when I say for the good of others as well. God is big enough to do just that. So that means that some of us are gonna have to stop agreeing with the enemy. And as we do, as we actually serve, I think we'll find that little voice, that you're not, whatever, that sounds like, I guess mine sounds like a mouse. Anyway, I don't know what yours (laughs) sounds like. But that, that voice will begin to diminish and diminish even more as you take ground and you take back what was stolen from you. I like to think of this like a glass that has a lot of cracks in it. This is not a great analogy, but it's gonna work. Stay with me. If that glass is filled with the right thing, it has the potential to pour out so much more than a solid glass ever could. Brokenness is not the disqualifying agent for service or serving others. It is usually the prerequisite for it. If you don't know the gift of God putting you back together again and again and again, you cannot offer that to others if we're actually going to live as disciples, if we're going to live the embodied reality of love through serving others, we're going to have to trust God with who we are. And he can handle that. We're going to have to trust God with our brokenness. We're going to have to trust God with the brokenness in our world. And we're going to have to trust him with what our lives look like now. Since last spring, I've been quoting Wayne Gretzky, who knew? Not me, till I did a Google search last night. The quote is, and I bet you know it, you miss 100% of the... Look at you, you and Wayne. Anyway, I legit don't know where I heard that at all. <laughs> but I kept saying it through the summer as a mantra of sorts, so as not to miss any opportunities that the Lord had for me. Again, no idea where it came from, probably God, Um, but I can't help but think about that quote in terms of what we've been talking about tonight, especially when it comes to acknowledging our obstacles of practicing this work or this discipline of service. Beyond the brokenness of our world and our lives lives a narrative that most of us will have to confront as we enter into this practice as we serve others, as we seek service as a means of ushering in the kingdom of God and becoming like our rabbi. Serving others, at least as as far as I can tell in my own life, has often centered around right. Right time, right season, right context, right cost. Right. Right. Or another way to say that is a formula for service that fits both my preferences, pain threshold, season, comfort level, personal cost, or schedule parameters. Right. That's the thing that we look for most often, especially as Americans, when it comes to putting this discipline or this way of Jesus into practice. And it's here that we, if we fall into the trap of this kind of thinking, we will actually miss 100% of the shots we don't take. And those shots are valuable. I'm not trying to be cheesy, in fact, I'm trying to be very sincere, which I guess this is it. I just wanna say that I get to talk to so many people. I get to share a lot with others, and one thing that is often shared with me from others is about their hunger for the realities of the kingdom of God, to know life to the full, to know the power of the Spirit, to know Uh, uh, an experience with God or an encounter with God that could actually put families back together or heal legs or heal cancer. People hungry to know the kind of power from the spirit that restores minds and bring people back from the dead. I hear about that all the time and I love that. But those people who are coming to me with that kind of hunger usually, and I hate to say this, but those are the ones who rarely serve who rarely knows what it looks like to be cracked open through sacrifice so that others would know kingdom life. So many want the miracle, but so many are unwilling to go to the places the miracles happen. This practice of Jesus, like the others, is not conditional, but it is invitational. And that invitation, hear me when I say this, it includes God making a way whatever season or circumstances you might be in in this moment. He's happy to make a way for you to find means of ushering in kingdom life no matter your schedule. A great example of this is moms. They're constantly serving. In the night, in the bathroom, at the kitchen counter, in the car, and at Target. And though I'm not a mom yet, what I can tell you from experience is their conditions are never perfect. They are never up to the standards of the cost of what is actually being laid down. And the recipients of their sacrifice, rarely grateful (laughs) and not technically deserving. They didn't earn it, right? But they do it anyway. Serving, the discipline of service, it is always costly. I will be unapologetic about that. And the conditions, oh, those are rarely perfect. But that is exactly what makes space for God's power to be most present. There are no perfect circumstances, there are no perfect people, and there is not a perfect world yet for serving to be easy or accessible or even enticing. But what lies within this practice is a promise. And that is, and it can be enough when we're counting the cost. For almost 20 years, I read my utmost for his highest. Anyone else? Some of you are like, what? (laughs) It's a daily devotional written by an old theologian who's with God now. One of my mentors gave it to me in middle school and I never stopped reading it, I loved it. And in it was this quote that I've read at least 20 times and it is one that's never left me. In fact, it's something I think about almost every week. It reads like this. God can never make us wine if we object to the fingers he uses to crush us with. If God would only use his own fingers and make me broken bread and poured out wine in a special way. But when he uses someone whom we dislike or some set of circumstances to which we said we would never submit and makes those the crushers, we object. We must never choose the scene of our own martyrdom. If we are ever to be made into wine, we will have to be crushed. We cannot drink grapes. Grapes become wine only when they have been squeezed. In this quote lies a phrase and imagery that I have never been able to shake. Broken bread and poured out wine. Those two things require so much squishing to put it theologically. (laughs) And squishing is the threshold for serving. Squishing is the discomfort, the upside-down situations, the intrusive smells, the extra hour on a Sunday morning in a kid's classroom, or the stacking of chairs at the end of an event. It is the picking up of trash off the ground out of obedience, and it is the quiet act of listening longer than you want to to the individual who has no one else to listen to them. Squishing is the sacrifice. It's where discomfort meets God's grace, where vulnerability bends into mercy, where time vanishes because the kingdom is on display, and it is the distinguisher for the follower of Jesus. It's what sets us apart, and it's what produces wine and bread for others to partake in. From squishing comes the promise of wine, or better said of becoming something more potent than you were before the promise found us in serving is that you will know the kingdom and the king as you are squished serving is where heaven and earth collide and as disciples it is not only what we should do but it is also how we should live how we live that implies quite the scope And it often feels really complex, this idea of making this practice not just something we do once a month, but an actual way of life, which by the way, is the bar. How do we become people who see and sacrifice and not just sometimes, but all the time? How can we, as Paul put it, regularly carry the death of Jesus in our bodies so that others may know the life of his spirit? Well, I definitely don't have all the answers and I know you're surprised, but I do wanna offer a few principles, I think, that can help us along the way. You ready? Cool. Principle one, proximity. Now, this sounds way more complex than it is, but it is often missed, if you can believe it, in this practice. If you want to serve, if you wanna be broken bread and poured out wine, if you want to bring the realities of heaven, if you wanna see justice and mercy and peace, you will likely have to get proximate to the places where those things don't exist. Proximity doesn't have to mean walking the streets of downtown, though it can, but it does mean that you will have to get close to the places that both cost you and need you, that need the gift of God's presence. For some, it's literally walking outside your door and lingering for a few minutes, and for others, it's intentionally going the long way or inviting someone into your home or walking the streets that need a bit more cleanup. Whatever it is, if you are not proximate to the places and the people that need God's love, the evidence and power of his kingdom coming close will never actually be experienced through the gift of this practice and the gift of your sacrifice. Remember that this is a discipline. Some of you are thinking, I just don't have that heart. Well, bless you. Neither do I. You know what I'm saying? Look around. Ain't nobody got the gift. <laughs> it's a discipline. So it will require choices, deliberate choices. And proximity is the first one you'll have to make. Principle two, compassion. If you cannot enter into the story of another, if you don't actually see them, then you will not be able to serve them. If you cannot see beyond physical sight, then you will not be able to enter into the places of greatest need. Compassion, that is a prerequisite for service, as we learned earlier But what I wanna say here isn't just conjure it up best you can or try to find it in someone else, borrow someone else's compassion. That really doesn't work. What I wanna say is that it's okay if you have to ask for it. There are tons of people on earth that I am not fostering great compassion for. And that can be a problem, especially if I run into them at Target or wherever. (laughs) But when I do encounter those places within myself or my circumstances where I have little compassion, I just ask for it, and God gives it to me. It takes me a minute, usually, to receive it, but God does give it to me. So I just wanna say this. You know what to do with compassion, but don't be afraid to ask for it. Be willing to ask for what you don't have. I'm not burdened for this demographic or this reality or this nation. Then pray and ask the Lord of the harvest for a burden. A lack of compassion is no excuse to serve. You have the God of the universe at your disposal. Ask him to give you his heart, and he will. And might I say, it will be a shocking discovery when you do have it. Compassion is the gateway and the on-ramp to God's power being made evident, so ask for heaps of it. Third, humility. Humility. If you don't have humility when you start serving others, it's likely you will find it real fast. And honestly, that's funny, but I don't uh, mean it that way. I'm not trying to be cheeky. I say that from personal experience. Even when I thought I was humble, I realized that I wasn't when confronted with my own need for dependence and help in actually serving others. Humility, this Considering others better than yourself, it is acknowledging your own dependence on God and letting that shape how you look at and care for others. Your own dependence, it reminds you of the fact that your needs are no less great than anyone else's. Across the board. And that, that helps you bring dignity to whoever and whatever you are serving. Principle four, consistency. Showing up doing it every day in small ways and in big ways. This is how you become like Jesus. I know a lot of people who are like, I showed up once a month as though they should get a sticker. I mean, mean, it's honorable, it is, and I'm not trying to be rude, but um, not a lot's getting transformed after just a one-time show up, you know what I'm saying? You know those married people who've been married 40 years? They're chiseled, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Lots of bumps, lots of elbows, lots of stuff to become the person they have become. Showing up and doing it every day in small and big ways. This is how you become like Jesus. If you have read the Gospels or you read them at all even now, you'll know this is Jesus' MO. Whether his deeds were hidden or on display, Jesus regularly served, and he did so even on the night of his death. Consistently serving That is what changes us. That's the thing we desire to have transformed within us. Serving consistently, it's what conforms us to the image of Jesus, and it also is what helps us find healing and wholeness ourselves. Mercy that we extend to others usually has its way of finding its way back to us. And in that, there's healing. Consistency, it builds faith and hope for what could be. And we need a lot of that, don't we, in this kind of work? Now, those who consistently have served, uh, to me at least, they seem like they have a superpower. And there's a guy here who's been serving for literally 150 years, and he's not that old, but he has been serving that long. He's sitting in the back on the floor over there, Brian Haynes. He's wonderful. And um, (laughs) I think about him, and I think, this man's got some kind of superpower or... He's so much more godly than everyone I know uh, because it's hard to serve so faithfully for so long. So as I've thought about this, what I'm realizing is that there is an actual thing happening. And you know what the superpower is? At least I think, and Brian can confirm it later. uh, Please line up to talk with him. He'll love that. (laughs) I think it's fun. I think fun is the superpower. They're having fun with God and the kingdom coming near. That's fun. And I know it's fun because they keep coming back to it. Consistency changes us. And in the context of serving specific people, it changes them. I've been on staff almost 12 years now and I don't think I'm the greatest servant in this community, but I have been pretty consistent. And that's meant something to me. That's changed me. That's made me a very different person. And I think at some level it's meant something to y'all. You see, trust is built with consistency, and in serving others, trust is one of the greatest currencies we have. It's how those who we are serving actually become family. So be consistent and see what kind of fun you can have. Finally, principle five, gratitude, or be grateful, or practice gratitude, or get grateful as the women in my church used to say. Go go ahead, baby, pout and get grateful, you know, always. I'm like, I'm so pissed, Miss Nancy, I'm telling you. Get grateful, you're like, I'm not finding it. I have rage in my spirit now that you're speaking (laughs) this to me. Have you noticed that grateful people are usually happy people? Grateful people are willing people. Grateful people carry faith. Grateful people are often available people. So practice gratitude in serving others. And by the way, that just simply means celebrating what God has done and is doing. If your service looks like picking up trash, then when you walk the path where the trash was before and it's clean, you should celebrate that. Or if it's dirty again, celebrate that it was clean. Once. (laughs) Gratitude, it grounds us. And it reminds us that we are not in charge of the outcome and that all of it is worth it, whether we can see it or not service or serving others, it is the intersection of the chaos of earth and the order of heaven. It is the vehicle for the kingdom of God to come to earth and it is the defining act of Jesus and of his disciples. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we read that the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And friends, our invitation is the same. Today, both my mom and my dad were at church, uh, not ours, theirs. And with great confidence, I can tell you that my dad was there a few hours before the service began, setting up chairs and ensuring that there was enough coffee mate in some of the Sunday school classrooms. And my mom was also probably at church a bit early this morning to help greet, and if it's not this week, it'll be another soon where she'll stay late and she'll host a table for newcomers at her church. My dad will undoubtedly stop at some point this week and help a single mom carry things or kids to her car, and he'll hold doors open for a lot of strangers. My mom will have people into her home tomorrow night where she will first vacuum the floors and then set up the snacks. And they will both have long, uncomfortable conversations with people they they would rather not, and they will both in big and small ways usher in the kingdom of God. As they always have, and they won't think about the cost, because I don't think they do anymore. You see, their eyes and their hearts are attuned to this practice, because they chose it so many years ago, and they didn't stop choosing it, in and out of season, with small kids and grown kids and grandkids, and that reality has ushered in the kingdom of God, and not just to me, but to our family and to so many others. I'm a professional Christian today, largely because I remember thinking as a 15-year-old that serving God and his people was the funnest thing on earth. Hard and costly, but so much fun. And I knew that because I saw it firsthand, day in and day out. I want to serve, not just because it's a practice, but because in it I find more of Jesus and he finds more of me. The practice of service we've been invited to, it's more than just a box to tick. It is a call and and a gift of recounting over and over again the good news and the life that we have found in Jesus. And I just have to say, what could be more fun than that?